in a way, that's what media is doing to a great extent. It, it, it's, it's opening that space for people to come, discuss, are, be aware, the, the and then you have to go from there to participate in democracy. Mira means look in Spanish, and that is what the Miss Immigrants' Rights Alliance wants us to do. They want us to take a look at our community. They want us to see the people who are living in fear, and that was the name of a panel discussion that Mira, a club here on campus started by Bin No, that was the name of the panel discussion they had three weeks ago. The panel discussion revealed a lot of very inspiring and also disturbing facts about the plight of immigrants here in Monterey as well as across the country. And this podcast, this episode of Miss Radio, is a discussion the day after the panel discussion. You're about to hear from Bin No, the founder of Mira, the Miss Immigrants Rights Alliance, another member of Mira named Tana Espinosa, as well as Professor William Arrocha. He is a professor here who teaches classes on migration and human rights, among other subjects. And the three of them are going to answer some questions and debrief the panel discussion that took place a few weeks ago. So without further ado, welcome back to Miss Radio. Here is the discussion with Tana Espinosa, Ben No, and Dr. William Arrocha. Actually, you know what? I'll let you introduce yourselves. My name is Gabe. I am your host for Miss Radio. William Arrocha, professor at the Institute. Ben No, a co-founder of Mira. And Tana Espinosa, a member of Mira. Okay. And you're all students. Well, yeah. you're still a student, right? We are eternal students. That's what I like to think as well. Um, so we are doing a follow-up, sort of a debrief on the event you held last night, Mira, the Miss Immigrant Rights Alliance. Alliance. Mm -hmm. So you had a panelist discussion mm -hmm. of living in fear. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to have these speakers on campus last night? Um, so we invited uh, five different panelists. Um, hoping to get a diverse uh, range of perspectives um, of people who are living um, and working with immigrant communities. Um, and we, we wanted to raise awareness about what's going on um, in our local community and um, connecting what we study here at MIS with what's actually going on um, in the real world, which is like in our neighborhood. So. Um, yeah, we invited five really amazing panelists, um, each working on different aspects of immigration, um, but to give us like a more holistic view of what's going on. So that yeah. was the original mission, yeah. Yeah, there were a lot of really good perspectives mm -hmm. last night from very different walks of life, but they all were pertinent to the sort of, I was about to say the plight of immigrants, but that was something I think I learned last night mm -hmm. that we shouldn't view them as victims, mm -hmm. as unidimensional beings that are worthy of pity. Mm -hmm. uh, but on that note, one thing that really stuck out to me was this idea of invisibility being um, imposed. Uh, invisibility is a value for these people living in our communities because they are afraid of being discovered. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask all of you, uh, what do you think that that says about the policies here in our country 
that immigrants feel they must be invisible to survive here. Dr. Well, I think there's two ways of understanding invisibility. Uh, on one hand, immigrants want to be invisible in that they want to integrate into the community and not always be labeled as immigrants. So that's a, a positive, constructive way that all immigrants try to do, regardless of the fact that many want to keep traditions, culture, values, uh, but they don't want to necessarily be differentiated by the community. So that's, that's an important distinction. Uh, invisibility, in the other sense, is really living in the shadows, right? It's the fear. So that one is a different uh, invisibility triggered by fear, where immigrants, and particularly irregular immigrants, or so-called, you know, undocumented migrants, definitely fear a set of policies that are very punitive, meaning that they criminalize their presence in the country. And by that, uh, they can be ha victims of harsh punishments, detentions, deportations, and so forth. And, and this is actually, this, the fact that they are being criminalized, it, it isn't actually a criminal act to at least under a criminal code here in the U.S. That's a distinction they made last night, that simply entering the country does not make you a criminal, and that is part of the rhetoric that is being used to demonize this population. Well, let me uh, clarify this. The act of entering the country without presenting oneself to an officer is considered a crime. The act of overstaying one's visa is not considered a crime. Mm. Uh, so uh, the act, for example, of assisting an immigrant that w one knows is irregularly in the country can be considered a crime. So, so there is, since 1996, uh, that criminalization of acts of moving across the border uh, without presenting oneself to a U.S. officer. And that definitely carries on punishments with regards to detention or barring the individual from coming back into the United States mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, three, ten, or indefinite time. So th the fear is, is real, and it breaks circular migration. So th so I, that's, that is a really, really serious problem added to the rhetoric that criminalizes all irregular migration. All right, so it sounds like there's been some extrapolation from the very um, distinctly defined crimes that can occur when immigration is not done by the book. Um, but there does seem to be some stretching of the term in terms of political rhetoric these days, in terms of demonizing. Exactly. Uh, speaking to that, another question I had for the two of you, you're studying development, you're studying migration. Um, one thing that I know comes up in my research and my studies is um, the difference between trying to address the conditions of the sending countries, as they're called, the countries from which migrants are migrating. So whether we should address conditions in those countries as if that's our right, um, which is part of the debate, or whether we should address conditions in this country as far as making us more receptive. So 
what have you found in your studies as development students? Um, what have you found about the efficacy of addressing sending country conditions versus receiving country conditions? To the point of addressing um, the conditions in sending countries, I, I do feel like that's something that is often said by various politicians, um, by the media, but in practice it seems like the, the kind of, of help or guidance we provide in attempting to Im improve conditions, quote-unquote conditions, in sending countries it, is limited to the beefing up of their own border protection or the beefing up of their own security schemes, um, delivering uh, technology, military technology, so that they can crack down on gang violence or so they, they can properly patrol their borders. Um, and it's not the kind of holistic help or guidance that a country would need to actually address the, the, the causes, the, the core causes of um, people's, the kind of suffering that people are, are facing, the kind of suffering that would make them want to pick up, pack up all of their belongings and travel across countries to a, a completely different place. Right. So I feel like we're a little bit misguided in that um, in that aspect. And building off of that, um, I don't think it's an either-or kind of um, strategy. You have to be doing both at the same time because the reality is um, there are a lot of structural issues within these countries and it's not going to be fixed in one or two years. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, people will be migrating. Um, so that's just the reality and we have to help the people who are already on the move. So it has to be like a two-pronged strategy, I guess. It, yeah, mm -hmm. at least two prongs. Mm -hmm. I mean, this... Well, like a <laughs> yeah. prongs. <laughs> yeah. The minimum. Yeah. So, Dr. Rocha, you've been in this development environment for a long time, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of policies tried and failed uh, to <clears throat> change conditions in sending countries, because I know that a lot of the policies that were implemented by the United States in Latin America throughout the second half of the 20th century, in fact, led to these conditions that have forced people to move for their, for their lives. So going forward, is there any real reason to continue putting resources into the programs that exist? Or does there need to be a complete overhaul of the way we look at this issue? Because if we're only beefing up military or giving police tools to control the border, it seems like we're not changing much of anything. Which programs are you referring to? Or what kind of program are you referring to? Well, within I, the sending countries? I wasn't very clear. Well, this the sort of the interventionist tactics that we've taken over the last 50 or 60 years, as in, you know, picking and choosing who who is the ruler of one of these mm -hmm. countries, um, installing dictators, assassinating dictators that don't end up working out, uh, some of the trade agreements that we've made that have basically pushed Latin American leadership into material and resource economies that just are not sustainable in the long term. So is there any way that the United States can really affect conditions in these countries anymore in an effective way, or is it just is it something that these countries will have to solve on their own 
based on their own experiences? Uh, you know, uh, the reality is that today it's very difficult to see any changes, not just because of this administration, but in general terms because of the dominant political economies uh, and the way the United States political economy is is also ha has created these structures of dependency mm. with uh, a lot of, if not most, of the sending countries. Uh, from the 1980s onwards, we've seen a very strong push in the implementation of neoliberal policies under what is called the Washington Consensus. Mm -hmm. Today, we're seeing the consequences of these policies. Uh, do we need to change them? Yes, but who's the we? Under which conditions? Uh, we're also going in this country through a crisis in democracy. Do we have the right tools, the right democratic institutions to make sure that new generations that are proposing changes can reach the power to implement them through new foreign policy approaches. We're not quite there yet. So in the meantime, what we cannot do is to criminalize and securitize migration mm -hmm. because the human consequences uh, on our communities, I mean, as, as Ben was explaining, this panel was really to uh, m make aware but also to dialogue, to chat, to listen to each other, and how our community is suffering from these policies, right? And um, at least we need to work domestically to try to chip away the policies that punish uh, those who are trying to find a better life. A, a, a better life. That, based on what I heard last night and what this conversation has covered already, that sounds ri right in line with the themes that were expressed. Um, and part of why I ask these questions about whether interventionist policies of the past, present, or future are have any chance of being effective is I, I personally feel like if we can't manage our own domestic conditions, then we have no right, let alone competency, to begin affecting them in other countries in a positive way. So look, looking inward at a, on a domestic policy level, um, one thing that came up was that poverty is a form of violence, and poverty isn't something that only migrants or immigrants to this country experience. I, I would like to know if you have identified any sort of key factors affecting the poverty experienced by just Americans in general, but especially Americans and undocumented residents of the country uh, who are subject to this violence that is poverty. So where are you looking? Um, the, the whole pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of point of view kind of creates a, a country in which um, if you start a little bit behind the starting line, for example, and you don't have the skills that um, would make you quote unquote useful useful in this in this scheme useful um, as in able to useful earn a as living. in able to earn a living yeah. useful as in able to produce some some kind of product, whether it's a service or a, a physical good, the value of your labor is now lowered because of we have this global system of of production 
Um, so the kind of jobs that you could get in the past where maybe you could sew, sew, sew a garment or um, you would work some kind of machine, you didn't need necessarily need a lot of education for that, but you could make a decent living because the value of that labor was still um, high. Nowadays, those kinds of jobs have been cut into pieces and spread across the world. So you have someone in China who, um, we discussed this in Dr. Rocha's class, but whose only job is to sew on zippers, mm. whose only job is to brush the lint out of the pockets. Um, and then they send these products to other places where they're, where they're further processed. Um, and that's only one small skill set. So you have someone who's, who maybe has a high school education, but the kind of work that they could do, first of all, it's not present in the United States anymore. Um, like poverty is experienced like whether or not you are an immigrant so it's not exclusive to immigrants but um, I feel like if you are without status um, your problems are compounded because um, you aren't able to get benefits or you're not able to get a job um, like a good job um, your 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 opportunities and like the things you can do are drastically limited and so you know it's harder to get out of that trap without the legal status there I don't know if you have well one thing that has been coming up a lot in discussions of the social issues faced in the United States today is the wealth gap between especially what what makes most conversations is the wealth gap between white Americans and African Americans and that's something that isn't just like a measure that you take on a day where you look at what are income levels. It's it's decades, centuries even, of advantage or disadvantage. And obviously a migrant or an immigrant to this country is coming in with probably only enough money to, you know, pay the coyote or ideally if they're coming in, le you know, through legal avenues, they have enough money maybe to process their papers. But without that level of sort of savings that a family or a, a sort of specific demographic group generally needs to acquire to start, you know, to get to that starting point that you're talking about. Without that, you're forced to basically just spend whatever you're making. Um, shifting gears a little bit, I want to ask you about, since you, you started this sort of process of advocacy here through Mira. Um, and one of the speakers last night, Maritza, who is a dreamer herself, she's a DACA recipient, uh, she mentioned something about the complementary skills and experience that you can offer and work together on. And I wanted to know where you see these <coughs> kinds of complementary skills actually taking the advocacy in terms of effective advocacy. Um, where do you see that going from here? Yeah, um, so uh, I know all of the Mira members were really excited to hear um, her say that because that was actually the goal of Mira. Um, we wanted to not only um, raise awareness about what's going on, but actually um, work with the, the community members to do something about it. And so um, we've actually, as a club, um, partnered with the United Farm Workers Foundation, and we've um, been helping them um, with 
volunteering with various events that they've had, um, including um, citizenship classes that we've both um, participated in, um, not classes, but workshops to help people um, sign up for forms and, um, you know, renew DACA and uh, just help in whatever way we can. And like Maritza said, um, you know, we, we bring different um, skills and different um, expertise to the table. And so we all need to work together to, in order to even begin to get change. Um, so do you have uh, well, Dr. Rochi, you've you've seen a little bit more of these sorts of social movements than we have, um, having just been alive a little bit longer. But <laughs> when you've seen successful <laughs> movements for sort of representation or uh, even just basic civil rights, which obviously undocumented immigrants do not have, um, and if they do have them, it's rare that they are actually given to them. But over the years, what have you seen as sort of successful tactics or strategies or organizations that have effectively advocated for the rights of marginalized populations? That's a big question, right? It is a big question. <laughs> because it depends when and where, uh, you know, I was, you know, most of my life was in Mexico and in Canada, so I've been 18 years here now and I've been in touch with Salinas, but uh, the most effective movements are the ones that come from within the communities. Uh, so even if if we can connect to them and assist them, it's it's their mm -hmm. plight. Uh, it, 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 you cannot just keep ha grabbing a banner representing a community because at some point uh, you lose the ethos, the deep structures and. And, and, the, and the deep goals of, of the community. So, uh, again, the most effective in general terms across the world is uh, the, the movements that come from within. Mm -hmm. uh, now, this does take me to a distinction that I wanted to make from the beginning of the interview. Mm -hmm. uh, regardless of the fact that uh, one of our panelists reminded us rightfully that we cannot pity uh, irregular migrants, they're all going for plight. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can even refer to Maritza, right? Mm -hmm. uh, she is doing the best she can do to empower herself and her community. Uh, however, she's going through a life experience that none of us in this room mm -hmm. uh, are having, which is not knowing when, where, under which conditions, that deferred action to deport her will take place. Because I really want to distinguish, DACA is this deferred action. What it's saying is, I'm going to do it, but I'm deferring the action. So even to be a recipient of that um, waiver, if I may say, is to accept the fact when you sign the papers that your deportation is being deferred. So again, it's not that I want to victimize Maritza, but uh, it's a struggle that is difficult for us to fully understand. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, it does require a social justice mm -hmm. sense and practice of compassion and empathy. Mm -hmm. Not pity, but definitely empathy and compassion. I feel like that applies in a lot of different areas where change is 
where people are just kind of aching for and screaming for change. In this case, like like she said, the, the process of coming out as an undocumented immigrant is hard enough. Mm -hmm. And then from there, advocating for yourself and for your community is yet another level of difficulty. Mm -hmm. uh, when you talk about the deferred action, I, I worked in an immigration firm for a little bit, and I was working there when the 2016 election uh, was decided. And it was a marked difference between the weeks and months previous and afterward. Uh, our DACA clients fell off the map. Mm -hmm. They were afraid to reapply because they were afraid that the government would know where they were. Mm -hmm. And the fact is the government already did mm -hmm. know where they were, at least based on their last address, their last workplace. Uh, it was really difficult to convince them that it was safe to even talk to their lawyers. And I, I, I'm not a lawyer myself, I was just a legal assistant. Mm -hmm. But when you see these people walk into the office, they are choked with fear. Mm -hmm. And however, there was... Um, there was opportunity for these DACA recipients to eventually become citizens, at least under a more sympathetic president. After five or six years of working in the country, there was, under very specific circumstances that I cannot name now, there were opportunities for that. But one thing I want to ask, um, it was mentioned by one of the panelists last night that DACA was originally conceived as a sort of feeder program for the military. And I do know that I, I'm not sure how much I agree with that statement, but it does make sense in a certain way that these, because military service is technically a path towards citizenship here, and yet veterans who have been serving, who were at one point undocumented immigrants, are now basically losing that carrot that was dangled in front of them. And they all they've done is offer their service, put their lives on the line, and now they're being subjected to the same risk of deportation as anybody else. So. I want to know what does a path to citizenship look like if, like, what, how do you earn it? Um, how can it be earned? Does it need to be earned? You don't mind if I come in? Yeah, please. Uh, okay, several things. On the first issue, uh, DACA in itself does not grant immigration status. However, yes, if an individual is working under DACA and the employer at some point decides to promote a working permit, a change of status. This is not immigration status, but a change of the status from a recipient of DACA to a working permit, it is extremely complicated. It can happen, but it is but it's very complicated. Because it, it, it requires first to clear all of the immigration history of the individual. Mm -hmm whatever administrative um, violations and so forth happen, so it's really complicated. So most employers, except if that DACA recipient is an added value to their operations, will not take that pathway. It's, it's very difficult. So I just wanted to clarify that. You could, you could have decades of DACA renewals without ever getting even close to have the permanent residency and then the citizenship. So that's one issue. Uh, if, if you recall, I, I did uh, correct my colleague in that DACA was not based on military service. The DREAM Act mm -hmm. was based on having as one of its incentives, not only but the most important incentive, to grant expedi expeditionally the, um, uh, the, the permit to stay and to change status in the long term if the individual was to choose to be part of the service. 
not that right so but there was a, a correction that was made yeah, that's a good distinction yes it's a very important dis- 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 distinction right DACA is as you know an executive order that uh, was applied for a specific group of young individuals that happened to be uh, part uh, from the larger universe of those who we call dreamers uh, but it's not the same issue these are two different aspects. You can have a DACA recipient that is not necessarily a dreamer, let's put it that way. Mm. Okay. Well, so the programs that exist now are sort of on life support um, in terms of the politics surrounding them and their futures are very uncertain. Sort of to round things out in this conversation, uh, where do we go from here? Whether it's this, I mean, it seems like you have to start at the local level, as as you have with Mira, as you have by communicating with the Salinas Police Department, as as this community is already doing. But when does advocacy become legislation? I mean, it's a long pathway between them. But um, where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. Um, I first wanted to point out that, um, like, we don't want. As Mira, we don't want the conversation to be about us. It's it's we're how we see it is like we are the support um, and kind of like the connector between what's going on in our community and the Miss community specifically. Um, we were we started because we were were a little bit frustrated that um, you know here at Miss we study a lot about different localities like around the world um, but very few people understand what is going on with our own within our own community and what's um, people are going through and I think it has to start with that conversation for people everyone in the community has to know about it um, in order for anything to change and like the panelists yesterday suggested like here we have all of the tools for us like we will become the future policymakers and you know if you don't understand what's going on in your own community how can you like make any policy to change that basically we are trying to lift up those stories and make people more aware of what's going on in order for someone we see it as a snowballing effect, right? So hopefully in the future, there will be more people, more organizations like Mira to lift more voices up and um, bring about change that way. But yep. yeah, I mean, it seems like it's really about affecting people's perspective and mindsets mm-hmm. at a critical time because we are mm-hmm. future policymakers, ostensibly. Uh, I feel like that is the truth for me and I hope it's the same for you. Uh, it seems like if this had happened 30 years ago, if people were having these conversations then, policies would be different because there might be more humanity mm-hmm. in them, uh, human understanding of the people whom these policies actually affect. But Dr. Rocha, what, is, what do you see in the coming years as a, a viable path forward or multiple potential viable paths? Well, I think we have to increase the spaces for participatory democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, anybody who's whatever you're studying policy or applied sciences but particularly of course if you're studying policy you you cannot delink your specialization with the fact that 
that specialization is a product of and has impacts on how power is distributed through society, right? And if you, if, if, you, if you were to change, for example, the immigration system into a more people-centered, into a more humanitarian system, you have to use multiple institutions, local, state, federal, in the case of the United States, right? But for that, you have to be someone who is not just a policy maker, you're a policy doer, but again, you, in a way, that's what media is doing to a great extent. It, it, it's, it's opening that space for people to come, discuss, be aware, and then you have to go from there to participate in democracy. Within your community, among, uh, among your community, it goes from uh, city council to state legisl legislations, right, legislators. Um, a lot of times we're just looking at, I know that immigration is a federal uh, you know, the issue, but still, you, you can start with your state legislator. Today, California has a bill, SB 54, that at least gives some protection to irregular migrants that are, that are working, right? So these are labor migrants. Uh, at the federal level, uh, we need to start having people uh, from an advising position or that engage directly in politics. Uh, we don't announce them as jobs, right? But I'm always saying the space of politics is there for you to take. We're looking for the job that has a title that exactly mirrors our degree. And yet, you could run for local office, for state office, uh, and do a lot with what you have. Uh, I'm, always, uh, I'm always surprised how, in, uh, particularly in the United States, how people who run for office are not necessarily policy experts. Mm -hmm. They do it from a sense of, I don't know, community or ideology or whatever. They have advisors that work with them, but they don't do it as someone who says, okay, I study political science, I study sociology. How, I, I want to see how it can translate in the, in the work of politics. And I consider that I stu our students here have very good skills, very good knowledge, that if they were to embrace that way, they could be very successful. Just wanted to add. Um, I think I think it starts with uh, yesterday. The panelists brought it up as well. Like um, you know, we constantly make this distinction between um, you know us and immigrant communities. Mm -hmm. Whereas um, if if we can, if as Mira, we can provide that space for discussion and for people to see. Um, real faces and put a face on you know these immigrant communities um, and they're just normal they are just trying to feed their family they're just working they want to pay taxes they they're just doing the best they can given their circumstances and I think the more people are aware of this fact and the more people um, I guess the m less mysterious these immigrant communities are, the the more empathy we can generate to change that dis national discourse to make it more um, compassionate, like Dr. Roach and said. inclusive, right? And inclusive, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and you know, um, like leaders, um, representatives, and senators, and legislators, they all have to follow what the the public think, right? They should be working for us. Mm -hmm. And if everyone is together talking about, you know, we need more support, we need to defend immigrant rights, then that will happen eventually. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs>
Well, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, it's, it's less a matter of hope and more a matter of us walking out of this room and doing it mm-hmm. um, to our best ability, uh, whatever is in our power to do so. Mm-hmm. And I'd say with that, unless you've got anything else to say, um, thank you to all three of you for this discussion. I hope it's just the beginning of a longer conversation that this country really needs to have. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I meant it. This conversation must continue. Muta's work will continue asking us to look and see our immigrant community members as the humans and contributors that they are that they deserve to be here as much as any one of us does. Anyone who believes otherwise has lost sight of the larger picture of history. I know I wouldn't be here if my grandparents hadn't immigrated from Romania and Poland. And that's the story for every American living on American soil today. Thank you to Mira for reminding us of that, for bringing the lives of our immigrant community members to our attention. Thank you to Bin and Tana and Dr. Orocha, and thank you to Taryn Kearns, another co-founder of Mira, for bringing this idea to me of doing a debrief discussion following the Living in Fear panel discussion. If even one of you factors what you heard today into your future policy making, then we will consider it a success. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back soon with more Miss Radio.